Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I am Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today we are talking about sin. Because that's what we do. (laughs) Someone's gotta. (laughs) Somebody, yeah, not enough people are. I'll tell you that. Yeah. So we're talking though today specifically uh, about the fall of man. This is a doctrine that deserves time in its own right, I suppose. Uh, We have looked at the Old Testament and New Testament terms that speak of sin. uh, And we saw that there were many words that are used, but the the biggest takeaway is that while uh, sin is infinitely evil before the eyes of God, we saw that there are various gradations of sin within the heart of a person. Uh, You know, sometimes people sin without even knowing it um, because we're just sinners by our nature and we just crank it out pretty good and at other times there's a great intentionality within our heart uh, where we know the line but we willfully cross that line Uh, and so last time then we began to develop the doctrine itself and began by looking at the essence of sin so we gave some false definitions uh, some working definitions uh, talked about various aspects of sin including the way that God sees it we worked through that Genesis Genesis 6 5 5 passage yeah um, and then the reason we both <laughs> did that was we had the wrong notes. Yeah. Uh, yep. And then we, uh, ended just by talking about who sin offends, uh, offends God, it offends our fellow man. And then it of course offends the sinner himself. Uh, but today we're going to, again, talk about the fall of man. How did sin enter the world? Why did sin enter the world? And what was God's response to that sin? All right. So with that. The place that we have to go to is obviously Genesis, um, because that's where the record of the fall is given to us. Um, The setting is very simple. It's in the Garden of Eden, uh, and the test is to obey God's will. Now, there's all kinds of different ideas on how you're going to interpret Genesis. We're those silly folks who just simply take it as it's written. We don't try to read that some mythological or great meta-narrative or metaphor or any of the other things that people do to try to make it not say what it says. Uh, And as a result, it makes it very simple for us to walk through the idea of how did man fall. So the test, it was simply to obey God's will. Um, and what we have is both the positive and negative aspect to obeying God's will. I should probably have that passage up, though. Genesis 2.15. Um, and what we have is the positive aspect of God's will, which was that they were to show dominion over creation uh, because they were God's vice regent. So in Genesis 2.15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So right now only Adam exists and we have the purpose there to cultivate and to keep 
the garden. So that was one. But there was also the negative aspect. Uh, they were to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And those are in the verses uh, following. So the Lord commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So we have, again, him speaking only to the man because he does not even exist at this point, but that was the command. So positive, show dominion, keep the garden. Negative, don't eat of this tree. Yeah. So at this point, though, he was, he's considered innocent and not yet guilty of any transgression. Yeah. Correct? Keyword, though. Innocent. innocent. Yeah. Um, and it's very important to understand that. Um, remember, God declared everything, and we're going to get into this more in a little bit, but he declared everything to be very good. Uh, that does not mean perfect. It means good. Um, and so there, there's a moral quality <clears throat> component right. to that right there. Um, nothing's yet tainted. It's considered morally upright and therefore innocent. Um, but again, that does not mean infallible that is incapable of, of sinning or incapable right, of error. Right. Uh, only God at this point is infallible. Um, and it's a critical point to keep in mind when you're trying to make sense of the fall. Um, God did not force Adam and Eve to sin. He didn't make them do this. Uh, having said that, he is also not guilty of their sin because he made them fallible right? Um, and not infallible. You know, So he's, he wasn't obligated to create Adam or Eve to be infallible human beings as he right. is. He, he, he is not conforming himself to an external set of morals. Uh, he is the definer of good right. Uh, and right, um, and he is the one that created him. But that that's probably one of the most common things I hear in mm -hmm. error that people will say is that they were created perfect. And, right. and it's like, you have no passage whatsoever that will defend that. They were created without evil or without sin, and so... They had not yet committed that sin, but they were innocent, not perfect. Very, very different. Right. So with that, we'll go to the people. Obviously, we're dealing with Adam and Eve. Uh, as we already said, they're untested creatures, um, and they were therefore unconfirmed, if you will, in holiness. So people will wonder how Adam and Eve could have sinned. It's probably the hardest question to answer in the Bible, and... The reason is we can't. We can't. I mean, ultimately, right? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, well, what would have happened if Adam and Eve didn't sin? Well, they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. every word after she took of the fruit and ate, everything afterward is now premised off that fact. And right, right. So don't spend a lot of time wondering what the Lord has not chosen to reveal. Um, it's not for us to deal with. Uh, but it is important to keep in mind that they were untested in their holiness. The, again, that point of innocence. So they were created very good and innocent, but not perfect. Uh, and there is no language in the text of being holy or righteous in that whole creation account. Everything was declared good, but there was no mention of being sanctified or being made holy. Yeah, that's all very important. Um, so the next component to the fall then is the tempter, which is the serpent, or we understand him to be Satan. Um, he is possessing the body of a serpent, Genesis 3, 1 and 14. You also see this in Romans 16, 20. Well, also Revelation at, at 19, it describes him as a dragon of old. Right. Yeah. Um, 
he is described as from Genesis three one. He is described there as more crafty than any other beast of the field which God had made. Um, and and the point there is that he was shrewd. He was clever. Um, and you're going to see in his deception that there's almost a brilliance to it. Um, the the word there carries the idea of using one's mind. Um, therefore, there, there's a forethought. There was a planning there that that he did in his plot. Um, the Septuagint translates the term as, boy, you just, oh, never mind, you didn't. I did. I was trying to <laughs> yeah. figure out what happened. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, oh, that's my bad. what. Yeah. <laughs> I need you to get better at typing. Yes, um, you do. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, we got half English, half Greek here. <laughs> well, I saw your cursor there, and I'm like, boy, you just screwed up my word. And I'm like, no, I just screwed it up. You're trying to fix it. Um, All <laughs> of the behind-the-scenes magic that goes on here at Faith and Fable. <laughs> um, so the Septuagint, which is that Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, they they translate the term there, crafty, um, as uh, phronimos, which is where we get like f- uh, f- uh, frenet- frenet- or frenetic. You're using your mind. Yeah, and phrenology. Yeah. Um, Bumps on the head. Y- right. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> I need more coffee. Uh, so it, it carries the idea of, of intelligence, of, of a kind of wisdom, a shrewdness. Um, and so the serpent here, understand this, is employing incredible skills to set up the temptation and the fall. This wasn't just something... He was just there one day and eh, I'll just take advantage of the yeah, situation. See what happens. Right. No, <laughs> no, there, there's a lot plot. of plot. Yeah. 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 So w- with that, we go straight to the attack. Um, in, in there, it's important, first of all, to notice that his strategy focus on the limits um, that God has imposed rather than the vastness of liberty that Adam and Eve possessed. And this is something that's worth everyone's thought is, you know, look at all the things that God has given us freedom. And yet the moment now, especially because we are in, we are sinners by nature, you know, you say no, right? You have little children. It's like little Levi. Yeah. Yeah. The moment you got no, they're like, why? (laughs) He has the whole house, but don't touch that. Well, there he is. (laughs) Touching that. That that must be something special. All he does is get disciplined, but yeah, that's life. So uh, we we can actually appreciate that, that uh, that's actually really a holdover from this original attack that Satan does is look at what you've been limited. Uh, So he doesn't attack them at the point of their dominion of what they were to do, but rather the fact that they were not to eat of the tree. In other words, um, what they were not to do. Right. So he doesn't, this is kind of funny sounding, but it's a good funny sounding. So he doesn't try to get them not to do something. Rather, he attempts to get them to do something they were commanded not to do. (laughs) Right. So do what you're not supposed to do. So the positive, subdue the earth, express dominion over it. He doesn't try to get them to like be lazy or not name an animal. Or some, you know yeah, what I mean? Leave that one unnamed. <laughs> yeah. The platypus. Yeah, he goes right to their limitation of that one thing they can't do, and that's where the point of attack is. Right, right. Yeah. So the second is then the nature of the attack, which is of course deception. Um, he says that the Lord God said to the woman. So it's also important though that he goes to the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me." Deceive me, and I ate. Uh, that's Genesis three thirteen. So, um, it was Eve who was deceived, 
And Paul picks that up even in Second Tim or First Timothy, and that's the issue. So the question we want to explore is how did the serpent deceive? What tactics did he employ? Yeah. So first, so a deception's a deception's a de that's not true. I mean, there's ways in which deceptions yep. happen, and we see it here. Um, this is why Levi has to touch that thing because there's something elicited in this kind of deception. So first notice he asks a roundabout. By the way, I thought you were talking about Levi, the priest. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> okay. Oh, that little, never mind. Your, your son. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so what, yeah, what were the tactics? Well, first he, he asks this very roundabout question but that he knows is not true based on verse one. Uh, so it says, now the serpent was again, more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So he's just posing a question. Yeah, That's all it is. I mean, it's not, he's not trying to bring up matters um, on anything else in creation. He just poses a question. Um, he's, he's introducing therefore, when he does that, a category into her mind that wasn't originally there. Yeah. And that's where this gets kind of insidious. Um, and so this is how the first deception begins. He wants Eve to start exegeting God's command to see if there's some kind of loophole, basically. Um, and he does that by simply first posing a question. Um, and with that, his intent is to introduce an element of doubt. And that's actually something that you can still see working itself out all the time today. Um, I whenever you have something that's overtly just simply said it's sin it's it's wrong um the first step almost always is people begin to pose questions and they're and they're only doing it for the sake of discussion or they have a friend or it's just posing well how would you handle it from this light so that's a whole issue of like the revoice conference right, right. Uh, over with homosexuality and the christian is can you be gay and a christian and the yeah. bible would say no no more than you can be a drunk and a christian you may have been at one time a drunkard but not anymore not if you are have been truly converted to christ you can no longer be a gay or homosexual uh if you are truly now in christ but they're posing that and so then you begin to discuss it and well okay what's being forbidden here and what's allowed and so right. you got people now who are saying well you can be a gay christian because hey that's just who you are but you you have christ and you can cuddle it's like, what, wait, what, where, what? Well, that's not what's prohibited. It's the actual right. sexual act of sodomy that's forbidden. And, and But it all starts with those little questions. Right. And all that really is, is just. Yeah, it's a great example. Because if you, if you can ask the question and you can introduce an element to the narrative that wasn't there before, you have just now changed the narrative. You changed the discussion. Exactly. In, under your exactly. terms. Yeah. And, and people are not, aware that that's what's happening. So they actually get into these discussions and they don't understand that the best thing they could have done is the same thing Eve should have done. It's just looked at him, kind of given them that uh, look of, who are you? And just walked off. Yes, yes, God did say that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just get out of there. But no, we have to, we think somehow we have to have a discussion. Well, don't. Yeah. So he, he poses the question. Again, the question is 
on the basis of what God has said. So it's always, again, an attack on truth, on God's word. But then secondly, so now he amps it up. Then he directly, after the question, now he directly contradicts God's statement. Verse four, um, Genesis four and verse one, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. So he begins with a question to create doubt. And then now he, once he gets her thinking in his narrative and in his terms, he now overtly opposes what God has said. Which is going to force her to make some choices. Right. Yep. Again, walk away, but. Yeah. Um, third, uh, now he, he, he amps it up even more. Now he plants in her mind an alternative. Um, but then it's built on a false interpretation of God's motives. Right. Five, which again, you see this all the time, even right. in conversations on scripture. I mean, your, your example was excellent. Um, so now let's give it, let's offer a, an alternative interpretation, right? Would God really send everyone to hell? Right. Would God really punish people endlessly? Yeah. Um, what kind of a loving God is that? It's just, it's all the same garbage. It all starts back here. That's why we're spending the time in this section is the fall of man is the seed from which every other sin springs right. from, and it all shares the same DNA. So you, establish the pattern. Yeah, right. you, you, once you see it, then you start looking, you're like, my kid's a sinner. <laughs> it's like, yes, so are you. Uh, anyhow, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, now he, he, he posed the question, he overtly contradicts, and now third, he poses a, a false or an a, a alternative interpretation of God's motive, verse five. So in verse five, he says four. So now he's actually building an argument. Surely you will not die, verse five, for this reason. God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Um, so again, he's giving the argument here. He directly contradicts God, but then justifies that contradiction, but on the basis of his own words. So the devil's not stupid uh, <laughs> at all. I mean, he's no. very skilled, very intelligent. Um, he doesn't, when this is the, the tricky part, this is what makes it shifty. Uh, he doesn't fully contradict God because I think Eve would be able to sniff that out. Um, rather, he speaks in half-truths. Um, and the best lies always contain an element of truth. And in fact, the more truth that a lie possesses, then the greater the lie, the greater the deception, the bait is just larger. So the serpent builds his argument on the basis of what Eve knows that God has said. And then the serpent right. now spins that. Now, of course, once mankind now knows the issue of good and evil, then all of our troubles also began. I, I just think about how often, again, we're always discussing, well, what's actually good? Well, is that really sin? I think of how many times, just as pastors, when we speak into a person's life, like, you know, remember when the Game of Thrones was going on mm -hmm. and people were like, what's wrong with this? Like, aside from overt nudity and immorality, nothing, you know, <laughs> except that that's forbidden. But what's what's wrong with that? I think that a Christian can still enjoy its cinematography and the storyline. It's like, oh my goodness, you can't you can't do it. Yet, overt statements in the scripture, and we can't understand it because we're now with that knowledge of good and evil, but we're not built to handle that. Um, right. Even as a Christian, saved and redeemed, we can't. We have to have something outside of ourselves that guides us and is an absolute uh, beacon, if you will. And the scripture is so clear on these things, and yet we still figure out ways to mimic Satan, has God really said. 
Yeah. You know, what's wrong with that? And what if we did, well, how about if my wife fast forwards it? So you want your wife to participate in immorality. It's okay for her to look at a nude woman. Yeah. Uh, It just, it boggles your mind, but we've all heard it and said it. So we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to deal with uh, D.A. Carson's categories on deception then, because he gets into this. Um, In Genesis 3, 6, it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So there are three categories here that he, he argues are present in this deception. The first one is sensual or the physical pleasure. Um, he, he writes, Eve saw that the tree was good. It was good for food and offered much physical satisfaction. Before the fall, the consumption of food was not necessary for survival. Eating was simply a gift from God for the purpose of physical pleasure. However, the lie of sin produced an action. Eve saw it was good for food and ate. She became convinced that eating fruit from this particular tree would be more pleasurable than the taste of any other fruit in the garden. Yeah. So he, he's pulling on these uh, categories from verse six, and there's details in that that we often, our eyes just slip over. Right. Um, you know, it was a delight to the eyes. Um, the tree was desirable to what? Make one wise, um, those kinds of things. So the first one is your point, physical pleasure. It was he's, a delight to the eyes. Yeah, she yeah. actually looks at the fruit differently for the first time. Before it was just forbidden. Yeah, yeah. And, and that wasn't a bad thing because there was no sin yeah. in her. So she just like, okay, so there's fruit and it's kind of like looking at a clod of dirt. It's just a clod of dirt. <laughs> but something shifted in her brain and now there's that sensuous aspect yeah. of she looked and said, oh, this is good too. I mean, all those others are good, but this one's yeah. good too. And so that was- Is God withholding something from me- That's good. That I'm lacking right yeah. now, right. And I need that. Yeah. I, I, I Again, <laughs> I need it. I need a Corvette. Right, yeah. Well, maybe not you, but- well, but you, I don't even think I could get out anymore. I'm too old. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be help. <laughs> yeah. We'll put in a rope. Um, okay. So uh, the first one is sensual in nature. There's a, there's an actual physical pleasure. And this is, this is true though, for all, all temptation. Um, and so this is kind of the pattern that's set out. The next one then would be aesthetic, um, pleasing to the eyes he observes. Uh, so Carson goes on, he says, the tree was a delight to the eyes. It was satisfying to her physical sense through her visual appeal. In the midst of temptation, she was already being offered some degree of pleasure. Therefore, although she had not yet sinned, here we begin to discover the difficulty of resisting temptation. Temptation is often the bait of sin. The image of the object of pleasure has passed through Eve's eyes and the smell has already lofted into her nose. As an example, what brings us to the kitchen is not the knowledge of cookies being baked, but the intoxicating aroma filling the house. Indeed, sin has an offer of satisfaction before it has even satisfied. Right. You you also have the same idea with um, Proverbs with the woman tempting the naive one, the simple man, and and she's promising things. She's, you know, her the way she's dressed and her words, her eyes, all of those things. We're all 
uh, easily led astray from there because we buy into a promise that's never actually overtly there. Right. Um, and but it's the bait. And then the fa the last part, and this is a D.A. Carson word. We, we're not smart enough to actually use this in the sentence. It's called sapience, uh, which is the offer of wisdom. So every good lie, he writes, must have a hint of truth. What makes the fall so insidious was the deception that Eve would become wise. Understand there was truth to this. Eve would know good and evil, but this was a half-truth. Eve would not know good and evil in the same way God did. That's key. Yeah. So he writes, when my wife had cancer, her doctors knew the kind of cancer she had. They were familiar with its terrible effects and mutations. They knew what the cancer was capable of. They knew its morphology and its many potential outcomes. They knew how to combat the cancer, what kind of treatments were necessary. The doctors had studied and interacted with the disease for years. They knew its color, its physical appearance, what it would be like in five years, and what it had looked like in the previous year. No one knew this cancer better than these doctors, except my wife. There was a way in which my wife knew this cancer in which the doctors could never know it. She knew it physically. She knew the way it felt, the way it made her change. The doctors never had to house the disease in her, their bodies and create an incubation in which it could thrive. They never hated it mentally, much less emotionally. It never affected their families the way it affected ours. Having an intellectual knowledge of the disease is not even close to the physical, emotional, and mental insidiousness of having it grow in your body. And this is the way in which Eve would come to know good and evil. She would, not on, she would only know it in a twisted sense. She would only know what the disease of sin would allow her to know. That's, that's really sad. Yeah. Uh, they would, she would never know it as God knew it. And this was a deception. She thought she would become a peer with God. What a lie. Yeah. That's a phenomenal illustration. Yeah. 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 Um, because how often we be we're believing some kind of lie when we give in to temptation. Right. Right. This will satisfy. This will bring me something yep. good. And it's just there's nothing good there for you. And yet this is the pattern of temptation every single time before it blossoms into sin. So we can see how the serpent deceived um, you know, he, he rarely does a full frontal attack. Rather, he always deceives through temptation and through half-truths. Um, deception is his game, which is why we are, of course, called to be on guard against his schemes. Or actually, Paul there assumes we know what his schemes are, because yeah. he says we are not ignorant of them, Second Corinthians 2.11. Well, and that's interesting, because my mind goes back to then our whole series on Satanology uh, and how he works and the fact that he does have these methods and schemes, but then also your sermons that you went through the temptation of Christ. And again, he followed the same pattern right. with Christ. Um, the difference is, of course, without sin mm -hmm. uh, in our Lord. All right. So uh, we dealt with the categories of deception there. Um, Let's deal with then the obvious results. And God issues now his judgments. Uh, sin entered the world. <clears throat> and what an amazing moment, terrifying moment. I mean, that moment where I remember once I got caught in a grievous sin. Um, and I, I mean, the moment it became clear that I was caught, um, I, I almost passed out. <laughs> 
I, I mean, it was bad. I was in trouble. I thought I was going to get arrested. And um, I didn't know what was going to happen. But everything just, I mean, I got lightheaded. I got terrified. Everything changed, but it was too late. Um, You've been outed. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can only imagine it was like that, but on a much greater level where, you know, she ate, her husband ate, and the the universe fell. <laughs> Just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, but we'll cover it with some twigs. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're good yeah. here. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. Goodness, just just the whole world changed in an instant for them. And so now um, it gets into the consequences. God brings these judgments. So he does it in order. He starts out with the serpent. And we see that in chapter 3 of Genesis 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between, whoops, I moved too fast, uh, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, there's some interpretational difficulties with this. It's difficult to know what applies to the actual serpent, what applies to Satan. Uh, but we do have certain things that we are absolutely certain of. He was humiliated in verse 14 and that there would become enmity between him and mankind. And that there is also this final judgment upon Satan that would end in him in a final sense. This death would come through the seed of the woman, specifically speaking of the Messiah. So the point to understand is now God declared to Satan his final fate. He slithers away that day with a clear understanding that there is no ultimate hope for him. Uh, he knows his end and that's going to yeah. be defeat. Yeah. So the rest of his existence, he's just now trying to wreak as much havoc as, <clears throat> as he possibly can. Um, so the first curse is issued out to the serpent or Satan. Um, the second one, is then issued out to Eve and all women, Genesis 3 and verse 16. Uh, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Um, so first, the obvious one is there would be pain in childbirth. Uh, and this is, of course, a curse that many women know very well. So my wife... <laughs> on the birth of our firstborn as she's going through those very birth pains in just before out comes Nikki. She's like, it's not, she literally <laughs> said, it's not my fault. It was Eve. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most endearing plea of innocence. I'm like, then did you lecture her on federal headship? Well, I almost did, but the baby came out. Oh, okay. And all so right. all of a sudden we became mom and dad. Saved so, by the baby. Yeah, saved by the baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but it was it was actually rather precious because it really was a plaintiff of like, this is way more than I bargained for. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking, I'm really glad I'm a guy. Yeah. 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 Um, so there there's two things in every woman woman feels this to this day. The first obviously is the pain of childbirth, but then the second one. Uh, very interesting. Um, it says, her desire shall be for her husband, yet he is to rule over her. Now, there's uh, some views on this, like there is everything else in the Bible. <laughs> um, what does that mean that uh, her desire shall be for her husband, yet he is to rule over her? Well, one view is uh, sees this as a sexual desire, um, her desires for her husband, yet 
in some way his isn't. It doesn't. It bizarre. doesn't work. Yeah. Um, another view sees it as a desire for greater emotional intimacy. Um, okay. Usually, it's all premise on the desire, and they but they don't interact with how that is part of the curse is him ruling over her. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like okay. Yeah. So then the third view, which makes sense of the whole thing, is a desire, her desire to rule over her husband. Um, and this, I would, we would argue, is the best view. Uh, mostly from Genesis 4 and verse 7, uh, it helps make sense of this. In Genesis 4 and verse 7, just the next chapter, it says, um, if you do well, this is God speaking uh, to Cain, I believe. Right. Um, Will not your countenance be lifted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And then here's the key phrase. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. So here we have the exact same words in the Hebrew, the exact same grammatical construction. Uh, it's just one chapter later being written by the same author as chapter three. Right. Um, so basic interpretational stuff, the clearer meaning should help us understand the less clear meaning. So in verse four, I mean, it's very clear. Uh, it's, yeah, I it's mean, sin is not wanting sexual desire uh, nor intimacy. Yeah, it's not feeling emotionally <laughs> distant from you. Right. Um, so, so it should also help us understand then how to interpret this construction in verse three. So the best view is to see it as a wife sinfully desiring the leadership position of her husband. Yeah. Plain and simple. Uh, and it also speaks, just by way of implication, to the nature of how husbands will be. Um, if they're passive, the wife will rule. Um, so he must actively work at uh, ruling over his wife. Um, and again, not in a sinful or domineering way. That's but, not what it's talking about. Well, actually, in a sense, I would argue it is in the sense that now sinful man will always dominate women. And in every culture, that's true. Um, what happens when one comes to Christ, though, is that now the rules change and now you are to love her as Christ. So now it's, you're still the head of the home, but it, it your mindset will shift. Um, I don't, yeah, you, I get what I, you're saying. Yeah. The, the practical, <clears throat> the reality is every culture, they will dominate, right. In the command, but it's a command. So in the command itself, um, okay. I, I get, well, uh, we're not saying, we're not saying God is saying you must dominate. No, you're <laughs> okay. So don't, <laughs> Um, there is a, yeah, there's just a, a way to the design and the order of man and woman. And God is saying, you're going to have to work hard at keeping these in the right order. Right. And so there's, yeah, there's going to be problems in it. And without Christ, they always devolve yes. into mess. Right. Um, so then what's the third, the third <clears throat> curse me. now? It's probably the COVID-19 right there creeping up. Um, upon Adam is a final one. That's in Genesis 3. Uh, verses 17 to 19. Um, now, the first thing before I read it, the observation that you want to make is that with the serpent, and it is that which the serpent and Eve, the curse was born directly upon them. But what's interesting is with the man, the curse is not immediately upon him, but rather upon the ground, which of course he was to have dominion and cultivate and to care for. So it says in verses 17 to 19, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, which is key, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall eat, not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles and uh, 
it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here, um, he it is not Eve that is responsible for the fall of creation, but Adam as the, the key guy. Now, before the fall, the Hebrew term uh, is labor, but now in post-Genesis 3, the author only uses a different uh, Hebrew term, which is the word for toil. There's something difficult now about life. It will no longer work the way it's supposed to, and we all understand it. So, he was given the task of cultivating the earth, and so God now makes it very difficult for him. Um, notice even the symbol of bread. Before the fall, God always provided food via the tree, but now he has to eat. It requires work to make bread. And as a former baker, yeah. I can attest to that. And I mean, he was then, making bread before yeah, fall. <laughs> yeah, he just got a pomegranate. Um, unless that was a forbidden fruit. Oh. Well, we never know. See? Uh, the greater point, though, is that since Adam was the head of creation, the curse upon him necessarily affects all of creation. And he was the representative of creation. So now everything in creation becomes twisted. So there's some further uh, cursings on Adam too. Well, uh, so the first is obviously he's expelled from the garden. We see that in verses 20 through, 22 through 24. And so that indicates now this separation that now exists, yeah. not just between Adam and God, but between man and God and actually all of creation. Well, that's where he God. met. He would right. walk in the cool of Dini with God. We deal with that in our podcast a little bit about the visible God. Um, yeah. Right? Exactly. Um, and so the result though is paradise is no longer experience, um, but paradise is now something that needs to be regained. Um, that's, a, that's a good line. Well, you know, that's, consider that's... the source. Uh, so. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> my humility is a product of my redemption. Um, <laughs> physical, physical death now enters creation. We see that in verse 19. Uh, and then lastly, there's also this marring of the Imago Dei, uh, reiterated, of course, in the New Testament, Matthew 25, Romans 1, Ephesians 4.18, and some of those. And so um, now the, the very image of God that we bear is now incomplete. It's broken. It's shattered. And, and that too is being restored, right. just like paradise. Right. So we passed over a lot of things in the flyby, but that's the basic biblical description of the fall. I really hope that it was helpful. Um, it, if you can learn to know this well, um, you'll understand life. You'll yeah. just understand so much of what's going on. It's why everything is messed up. This is why nothing is what it's supposed to be. So stop trying to lie to yourself that it will finally fill the void. Uh, this is why death exists. This is why death rate is 100%. It's why we all feel the pangs of this reality today. But the good news is that built into Genesis 3 was also that wonderful promise, that proto-evangelion uh, of the fact that he would destroy Satan. Uh, we have yeah. that whisper of the gospel. He was going to send forth his seed, born of a woman, but then crush the head of the serpent. And, and this seed, the one that was coming, would reverse the curse. This seed would be the one who would restore God's goodness um, 
into his creation, and this is the glory of Revelation. So, as you move along the whole axis of the biblical narrative, this whisper just simply gets louder and louder until we finally get to the New Testament. This promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, you can think about that in the idea of Galatians 4, 4, and 5. Um, he takes our Genesis, uh, our Genesis 3 curse upon himself. He promises to restore all things to what they were meant to be. And now we simply await that great day in which not only all things will be made good again, but will be made perfect, which is even better. Yeah. Um, so in 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And so we will be made like God, but in a far better way than Eve could have ever desired. So the promise is not merely to return everything to back to a pre-fall condition, but to actually recreate everything even better, which is yeah. cool. And we will not merely be good and innocent, but now perfect and holy. Yeah. So what I love about that, John, 3-2 passage is what Eve wanted and she sinfully tried to get is the promise that we will get because of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That we will be like him. Um which is what she was trying to be when she believed that lie. So anyway, that's the doctrine of the fall. Um, next time we'll talk about Lord willing, total depravity and original sin. Oh, fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Let us know what you think about the curse. And don't forget to share, comment, like, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend. <laughs>